0: If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, let me tell you what we've been doing over the past number of weeks since the start of September. We've been looking uh, at 1 Corinthians, and each Sunday taking a little bit of it and, and seeing what it means to us in our lives here in Northern Ireland in 2011. This morning, is chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at uh, the whole passage, and uh, we'll come to, to see what that has to teach us as well. Let's take a moment and let me pray for us as we come. Father, we thank you that you constantly teach us and that in that teaching you reveal yourself to us. So we ask that this morning you will do that again. Teach us, instruct us, and reveal yourself to us Equip us and help us to be fit for life in the communities in which we live, in the places where we work, in the homes where we are part of a family. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what you thought of that passage whenever we read it together. I will admit that it took me several readings even to get a a small grasp of what it's all about, and I think praying just a moment ago is asking to help us all to to fully understand it because it is an important chapter that we need to to get into. Two things, or, or one thing split in two that we need to know from the very start about what this is all about. We have to have two things in our mind as we look at this passage. It is two minds. The first being that of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church take the world as its guide. Philosophy, argument, rhetoric, debate. This is what they're basing their worldview on as it were because that's the society in which they're living. So that is the first mind that we have. The second mind is the mind of Paul. I'm going to use this word once and I promise I'll not use it for the rest of this service. I should say, I did give a presentation in college once and could not pronounce this word, and it's now coming back to me with chills as I like to pronounce it. Paul has an eschatological view. Eschatology. Points on our... Re- or prizes on a return envelope. Eschatology, the end times, thinking of heaven. Paul's vision is there. It's not just here, but it's looking into the future and what is to come. And for Paul, this is essential for the gospel. You can't fully understand the gospel unless you know what's to come. That is the return of Christ and for his people, an eternity in heaven. So two minds of work. For the Corinthians, their mind is in the world and what it teaches them. For Paul, it must be about the things to come it must be about heaven. Yes, living here, ministering here, but recognizing and understanding what's to come. And that's what's at play in this passage. Paul is is seeing what they're doing, how they're living, and he's trying to come against it by saying, no, the gospel must be at the center, and that includes a view to the end. In Paul's mind, the return of Christ is imminent. For Paul and the early Christians, there wasn't going to be 2,000 years later. From everything they understood about Scripture, everything that they had read and understood in the teachings of Christ, it was going to be within their lifetime that he would come back. So Paul's teaching to this church is very much the return of Christ is imminent. I don't think that's a wrong thing. Of course, it's not. It's Scripture, but it's their perspective at that time of what and how they interpreted it. But it helps us catch a glimpse of the urgent nature of a full understanding of the gospel. If we don't have an eternal view, we don't fully understand the gospel. Now, this passage is split up into three natural sections. And the first one looks at being a servant and being judged. We know, if we've been here for a number of weeks, that the church in Corinth was a little bit of a mess. There was a little bit of infighting factions. They were disagreeing with each other. They were starting to challenge Paul and not fully supporting him as an apostle of Christ. And Paul says in verse 1 that men ought to regard us as servants, that is, apostles as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with the secret things of God. And right at the very start, there's a key word Paul, for Paul here, and that is entrusted. If we were to look at that word servant, it's probably better understood as a steward. Stewardship. He'd been entrusted with things of God, and what he would do was he would live his life in a way that honored that trust. And Paul has changed his imagery here as well. A few um, verses earlier, it's very much about uh, like an agricultural setting, whereas now uh, Paul is very much in the idea of a home, a home in Corinth that would have a master with servants, children, a full working household. Perhaps if you're a fan of Downton Abbey that's currently going through its second series, you will recognize this. If you're watching it, you will know that Carson is the butler He is the only one who has the right to enter into the library or the study of the Lord of the house. The Lord has entrusted the butler to manage the staff. The Lord doesn't directly deal with staff. That's the butler's job. He has been entrusted to look after, to care, and to ensure the full working of the household. Stewardship. To Paul, this is what it is. He has been entrusted and he's been entrusted with the secret things of God. These secret things of God are no mystery to us. We know them through his writings and through the rest of the New Testament as being the full gospel, understanding the gospel revealed by God through faith. At times, whenever we think about what the Bible means and what it says, we can get lost in in trying to fully understand it. But Paul says, no, these mysteries are here, but we do understand them because right at the center of them is the gospel revealed by God through faith. And Paul gives us an insight. This whole passage is very honest by Paul, but he gives us a little insight in verse 2 to see what makes him tick, what, what gives him the energy to do the job that he's been entrusted to do. It's because it is of God, entrusted with the things of God. He will live. He will work in such a way that he will be proved faithful by his master. Right from this point, Paul is saying, I am a servant, and I have but one master. So when he comes to verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. He is setting out a stall, and he's saying, God alone is my master. He says that he doesn't even judge himself because he can't, because it is God who judges. And just as a little bit in there, whenever he says any human court, he's not belittling any form of government authority. But what he recognizes is that in his own work, yes, his conscience is clear, he says in verse 4. He's doing the best he can. He is faithful, to what he's been entrusted with, but he still isn't innocent. That doesn't satisfy him that he's doing a good enough job because he cannot even judge himself. To Paul, God is the only one who can judge. In verse 5, he really lets the Corinthians know where he's coming from. He says, and therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. There is an appointed time coming, Paul says to these believers in Corinth. Don't do anything until then. Reserve your judgment or what you think is your judgment, because really, when that day comes, you will realize that your judgment is not important because the only one who can judge is the Lord when he returns. And what's he going to do? Well, the image of the, that these readers or these hearers of this letter would have had is someone going into a dark room with a candle and going round from corner to corner, inspecting into the depths of the corner and the rest of the room. For us, it's one of those mega spotlights Going into a dark room and pointing that very precise beam into corners, up into ceilings and roofs, onto shelves, under chairs, under tables. Finding out what is there. Finding out what is truth. And in this case, it is the motives of men's hearts. Nothing is left unexposed. It goes right to the heart. The motives of why people have been doing what they have been doing. But Paul does give hope. He says at the end of verse 5, at that time each will receive praise from God. He says this is possible. Yes, things right now aren't great. You're doing this and you're doing that and that's not how you're supposed to live as a community of God. Get it sorted and on that day, rather than your hearts being found to have false motives, you will be praised by God because you have been faithful. You have been gospel-centered with the things of God. So let's take our first little break and say, what can we learn from the first five verses? Well, the application is twofold for us today. The first, we have to stop judging or examining our leaders on wrong grounds. Leadership is to be accountable. Accountability is very different from being judged. Leadership should not be examined or judged on what is individual preference. Because then that feeds one section of a community and doesn't look out for the betterment of the whole community. Paul says, stop judging me. The apostle was being bad-mouthed throughout many of the churches. They were accusing him of being, having his own selfish motives of why he was doing this job. He says, stop judging because the only one who can judge is God. Rather, what is Paul demonstrating? He is demonstrating accountability. He's saying, I will show you, I will show you, my dear church, how I live, how I teach. Measure that against scripture, but you cannot judge. You cannot be the one who draws down a sword on me. It is only God who can do that. So today, in the lives that we live, in the leadership that we have here, and wherever else we worship with the community, We have to stop judging and examining. Only God can judge. And God's judgment is on faithfulness rather than success. God won't tally up well, what have you achieved for me and what are the figures like? It will be this idea of stewardship, of being entrusted. Have you been faithful with what I have entrusted to you? The second lesson, to those of us in leadership, we must recognize that we are under trust. We have been given something that we've been trusted with, and it is our trustworthiness that will be finally judged by God by God himself on the grounds of our being faithful and being true to the gospel. Gordon Fee says, in that hour, none of our self-evaluations as to our worth in the kingdom is going to count for a thing, only our faithfulness to the gospel itself. Leaders are under trust with what they have been given by God Their job is to be faithful with what they have been given. Let's move on to the second section of this passage, verses 6 to 13. And in this little section, Paul gives the the Corinthian church the marks of an apostle. And before going into the detail of it, let me just take a little moment to remind you of what's going on and the things that we've already dealt with. The church was breaking into factions. These factions were based on personalities, which of the early church leaders they preferred. Paul has already said that it is Christ. It is Christ who is the one we follow. Not himself, Apollos or Peter. They are just servants. They are the messengers. But we follow Christ. And in verse 6 in this passage, he reinforces this by saying that everything that has gone before, everything that he has said, he applies to himself and to Apollos. And the reason he has done this, he says, is for their benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. For Paul, it's an issue of human pride. That is what he's tackling. The factions were setting themselves up, one against the other, as being better than the other. Well, I follow such and such a leader because of the great way he is, and I follow this leader because of the great way he is. It was about pride, setting each other up, one over the other, It's hard to know exactly what Paul is meaning, do not go beyond what is written. It's something that's there that was obvious to the Corinthian church. Our best guess in what the authors have said is that it is Scripture. Don't go beyond what is written in Scripture. In other words, don't fall into following the thinking of the world that will take them away from what is the truth of the gospel. And in the next verse, verse seven, Paul wants to head at home and presents two rhetorical questions to them. He says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And then another one that we look at and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is a question that allows total honesty before God. What do you have that you did not receive? In that moment of total honesty, the answer has to be that everything, everything is from God. All is grace. Nothing is deserved, nothing is earned. It is all grace. And with an understanding of this grace way of life, then the posture of believers change. Or it changes. The believer lives in a posture of unbounded gratitude. Whenever we fully understand that nothing is ours and everything is given by a gift of God, his grace, everything changes. It changes to a posture of unbounded gratitude. For Paul, the Corinthians who think that they have this special spiritual gifting or wisdom, thereby enabling them to judge others, it reflects a total misunderstanding of grace and they miss the humility of God expressed in Jesus, the one who was crucified. And in case they still haven't got it, Paul brings his point home with another question. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Why do they boast in what they have, their possessions, their way of life, their gifts, why do they not say it is only by the grace of God that I have these things? Again, Douglas Fee says that grace has a leveling effect. Self esteem has a self exalting effect. Grace means humility. Boasting means one has arrived. For Paul, it's their boasting reflects this attitude. So Paul turns to Irony to help them see the folly. Of their boasting. So in the next verses, verses 8 through to 13, it's a snapshot of what's going on here. Verse 8 is all about self-satisfaction. Paul wishes that it were true, that they could have been kings and these rulers, so that there could have been benefits for the gospel. Verse 9, Paul acknowledges his place, not criticizing God for it. He says, we are at the back. It's as if we're going into the arena, the weak gladiators going in at the end. Everyone knew what was going to happen. It was a crowded house, a packed house. These weak gladiators would come in and they would be slaughtered within moments. Paul says that in the full view of both men and angels we are seen in this way. It's important that we recognize why he says angels. A common New Testament thought is that not only does humanity look at us but also from the heavenly realms, the angels are spectators of the going-ons of of humanity. So in the earthly realms, in the heavenly realms, in the whole of the universe, they are being looked upon and seen as these people at the back of the line, of the procession, going into the arena. Verse 10, they're being made public, public spectacles. It brings with it the idea of being a fool, but it's a fool for Christ's sake. This again shows the incompatibility between what the world counts as wisdom and what Christians esteem, or what Christians should esteem in their minds. And this is where the challenge comes to this Corinthian church. Paul challenges them think about this for a moment. I am saying that I'm an apostle of God, but yet I'm calling myself the scum of the earth. I'm saying I'm a fool. Sharp contrast to the life that they had where it was about money, wealth, and success. Verse 11, Paul drops the comparison and concentrates on the hardships that the apostles are suffering. The reference to hunger is, again, a sharp contrast with the earlier, you are full. Verse 12, Paul states that he works with his hands This was unheard of in Greek thinking. Only slaves worked with their hands. None of these respectable people in the Corinthian church would have worked with their hands. They despised all form of manual labor, but yet Paul states he works with his hands, and he moves on to say how they are seen and how they respond. When they're cursed, they bless. When they're persecuted, they endure it. When they are slandered, they answer kindly. And then finally, in verse 13, the whole passage has been giving a picture of, of the uh, contradiction between the values of the Christians and those of the worldly wise Greek. And the, the climax comes when Paul describes the apostles as being the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Which would you prefer? Paul's way of living or the Corinthians' way of living? I think for us here it would be very easy to, to fall into the Corinthian way of living. We're rich. We're well-filled. But in that situation, we're all too often, it's the situation that blinds us to our desperate needs. If we are truly more like Christ, standing more often in opposition to the status quo with its worldly wisdom, we would know more of what it means to be called scum in the eyes of the world's beautiful and powerful people. And again, in all of this, we need to grasp Paul's end time perspective. With this, we see all we have as a free gift from God, and we focus on the end, the end that he has for us, rather than the end that the world has for us. Because the world would tell us work your days, get your pension, retire. And wait for that moment when we will breathe no more. But God tells us life goes on into an eternity where we will live perfectly in His presence. So, which would we rather be? A fool for Christ, called the scum of the earth, the refuse of society? Or do we want to be comfortable? Comfortable that blinds us to what's going on in the world. So that we become the center rather than allowing Christ, his place at the center of our lives. And it's hard. The comfortable life, it's called that because it is comfortable. Let's move on to the last section, verses 14 through to 21. Paul shows a genuine care and concern for the church in Corinth. And it's at this point we recognize it would have been very easy for Paul to set himself up and say, I'm telling you this, I'm better than you, so do as I say. But what does he say? I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children. This is Paul's pastoral heart. It's where Paul says to these people, I care for you. I love you. I want the best for you because I am like a steward. But he he develops that thinking a little bit more in verse 15. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. The term guardian was well known. It was a slave appointed by the master of the house to look after the children. Now, they were very different from the teacher. So this guardian was responsible for getting the children, from main, it was mainly the men or mostly the men, getting them from their house to the school and back again to oversee their conduct so that they would not let the name of the house be spoiled or ruined or, or get into the gossip circles. So Paul now moves and says, I'm like a guardian. I'm here to watch over you, to watch how you live, how you behave, to ensure that you get an education so that when you get home, it will be well with your father. So there are many guardians, mutual care within the church, looking after each other. Paul goes one step further once again, and he says, more than a guardian, I'm like a father to you. I want what is best for you, and this is why I'm saying this. I'm coming to you as someone who loves you and wants the best. And because of that, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And I want you to practice something. Imitate me. You've learned how I've done this. You've seen, you've witnessed, and now you're reading what I believe. And Paul says, I believe it's from God, so imitate me. Paul hopes to get to the Corinthian church. He hopes to get there, but it's God's will, he says, if it happens. So he's sending Timothy, who we meet in Acts 16 in Lystra, and has been with Paul, training and learning. Timothy goes to this church, and he does what Paul desires. He teaches, he instructs, and he helps them along the way. But we finish with a warning from verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come very soon, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. It's almost like a case while the cat's away, the mice will play. People are starting to put themselves on little platforms. They're beginning to have their voice louder than the next person. There's an arrogance coming, and Paul says, when I come, I'm going to test it, because it's fine someone standing up and talking, but the kingdom of God is all about power, a power that comes from God, a power that is of the Spirit. That is the true test. It is not the kingdom of God, in verse 20, is not a matter of talk, but of power. And Paul says, that's the test. And so he says right at the end, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? In other words, shall I come to you as a father who cares deeply so much so that I have to be cruel to be kind? that I have to be harsh so that you will learn these lessons so that you can go further in your faith and mature in Christ? Or do you want to try and and get it working yourself? Do you want to go back and go through what you know about God, about Christ, so that when I come it will be in love and with a gentle spirit, willing to mature you on in the life that you're called to live in Christ? So what can we learn as we finish? In this last week's section that we've looked at, there seems to be a tension uh, in the Corinthian church, and we would be ignorant to say that it, tensions aren't around today because they are. But the tension that's going on, the tension I mean, isn't between people and disputes and, and differences, but it's how is church done? How does the church be prophetic without being harsh or implying that one is above the sins of others? How do people, or how do we get people to change their behavior, to conform to the gospel when they think too highly of themselves? There's no easy answer to this. The world goes on around us, and yet we have to speak in to the things of this world, and at the same time, the challenge of the gospel must come that must be responded to. I think what Paul is saying is the church is called to be a genuine community. They're called to be a community truly following God, living for him as Christ has demonstrated. What does a a genuine community do? Well, a genuine community cannot risk judging each other along the lines of personal preference, but must care for each other in the understanding and in the light of Scripture. A genuine community must recognize that they are slaves to God, entrusted with the gospel to live it and to share it. And a genuine community recognizes tension in ministry, but must support leadership to ensure that the gospel is effectively proclaimed and lived as leadership is accountable. A genuine community genuine community of Jesus Christ. Over this past week, I've tried and tried to have this image in my head of what it looks like. And not to be the one who doesn't have much hope, but we'll never get to a perfect, genuine community, because the evil one still tries to tear it down. But can we try Can we try to be this community that Paul brings to us here in chapter 4, where we genuinely love one another, and not just love one another, but we look out for the best for each other. And at times that may mean forgoing my personal preference for the good of everyone else. A genuine community of Christ. We can only dream and we can only pray that it would come. Folks, it's a difficult passage. It's a difficult message in many ways. But can we run with it? In our various groupings that we meet in, whether it be discipleship groups or or prayer times or through different organizations, can we desire and proactively become this genuine community of Christ where there is mutual love one for the other, where there's love for this world that God has created and care and concern for those in it, can we do that? Because when we try, when we endeavor to be this, I believe with what Paul has been saying, that's our faithfulness test. We become faithful in the things that have been entrusted to us, faithful in living the gospel and ministering the gospel to each other. Let's pray. Father God, it's great that we can be together as your people. And this idea and thought of community is one that attracts us. Will you help us each day to be that community? Help us to grow. Help us to, to be proactive in how that is built. Guide us and envision us so that when it comes to that day, when only the Lord will judge, we will be deemed fit because of our faithfulness in what has been entrusted to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.